I was like, is that what it takes for me to be human in your eyes, for me to be an equal in your eyes? Is that what it takes for you to believe? Or did you always believe, but you just didn't care enough? Welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where I interview leaders not defined by position or title. Everyday people who lead their lives in extraordinary ways. And on this podcast, they share their stories, their life lessons and practical tools in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Can you imagine being refused a reference by your previous boss because you had the audacity to speak up and raise a complaint when they mistreated you? I mean, talk about blaming the victim. But this is the state and the reality of being a black woman in tech. And my guest today, Abadasi, who is the founder of Hustle Crew, she runs Techish Podcast with Michael, and is the first ever VP of Global Community and Belonging at Brownwatch, shares her journey navigating the tech world as a black woman. We also talk about the importance of having good friends around you, why it's important to say yes to yourself and say no to your parents, which is hard, especially coming from a black ethnic background. We talk about the highs and lows of Groupon when she worked in IPO days, find your purpose through pain and so much more. Let's jump into this episode. It's a great one as usual. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. Today I have the pleasure of talking to the co-host of Techish, the founder of Hustle Crew, author as well, you know, and um, VP of Global Community at um, Brandwatch. Yes. <laughs> yes. How are you doing, Abadessin? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Shope, for having me on the show. It's so funny because I get to see you twice in two days. <laughs> <laughs> Chope uh, did us the honor of speaking to the founders on the Future Startup Now program yesterday, talking to them about his journey and sharing some advice for their businesses. So that was really cool. And now I get to be on your podcast. So lucky me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Now you get to share share some of your journey and your insights. <laughs> totally. And I think the best place I can think of um, starting is the role you're currently doing right now at Brandwatch. Yes. Did not exist five months ago <laughs> when you started. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So... It's it's super cool to be in a position where I'm the first person in the role. I got to work with the leadership team to even pick my title, you know, VP Global Community and Belonging. We knew that I was going to come in and be the authority on all things inclusion, belonging, bringing our community together in a time where we're transitioning to a remote optimized company, in a time where we are trying to respond to the global zeitgeist around, you know, anti-racism and, and how to be more inclusive. So it kind of all came about in a really weird way. I actually started this year being made um, redundant. I was laid off from my job at Product Hunt. So I kind of started the 2020 as my 2019 and 2018 had been. I'm doing Hustle Crew, my side hustle, and I've got this job at Product Hunt. And then, yeah, I guess the pandemic happened. None of us could have really predicted that. And I was laid off from my job around April. And 
then I was just like everybody else kind of trying to find a job. Hustle Crew actually kind of really exploded in popularity during the Black Lives Matter movement because suddenly there was this demand of companies who were like, we want to get training in diversity and inclusion. We want to get training on bias and privilege. We want to like post on diversity jobs boards. We want to support black owned communities. So I was like, oh, okay, this is a really interesting moment in our journeys. <laughs> um, and then at the same time, I suddenly became a very in demand person to be hired. You know, I went from literally like not hearing back on job applications. <laughs> I was just like, like seriously, this would be around like, you know, late or April, early May. I was just like putting feelers out i got to offer stage with uh another company a very similar diversity role an up-and-coming startup and then i just heard from brandwatch and brandwatch is a company that i had been working with through hustle crew so i've done workshops in their brighton offices and their new york offices and there was just this catalytic moment you know during black lives matter where the diversity and inclusion committee said you know, we've been saying for years, we need someone in this company, we need someone in this company that owns this, and that has responsibility around making us behave in a more inclusive way, behave in a way that's anti-racist, as a company, support these movements, support these communities, and, you know, do the work of being more representative. We know that it's not just about hiring people, it's about changing our culture. And so, I've got the job, you know, they're speaking to a few people, but I think the fact that I already had that relationship with them through Hustle Crew really helped because there were people in the org who already knew me, who'd already sat through our workshops and kind of knew the style of our approach, which is very much focused on structural biases, um, structural injustice and privilege in our identity and trying to help people connect these two concepts in a way to make more equitable decisions. So like, it's been a pretty wild ride to be honest, but it's been great. <laughs> You just talked around things exploded during the pandemic with Black Lives Matter movement and a lot mm. of companies are now talking about inclusion. How yes. did you find that period? Because prior to that, it was golf season. Like nothing was really happening. Oh, People didn't really want crickets. to hear nothing. And then all of a sudden you got the black squares being posted up. You got all these companies doing the talk. Like between then, how did you find it at that point in time? And then how do you find things now a couple of months later? It's super interesting. And like the only way I could process the complex emotions running through me at that time were to like basically wear different hats and view eat, view the situation unfolding with all my different hats on, right? So with just my CEO hat on, it was incredible that I went from having no inbound leads to having like pages and pages of unread emails from all corners of the world. You know what I mean? Like Silicon Valley. Oh, hi, we're VCs in Colorado. Can you help us? Hey, we're a global tech company with 5,000 employees. I was like, what? This is crazy. And also I was in a situation where we're, you know, we're a social enterprise. We're a really lean team. I don't have full-time employees. I have contractors, freelancers who do set hours, set days, keep everything going from operations to product to marketing. So I was actually prior to that moment thinking like, I'm going to have to reduce hours. Like, you know, you're just looking at your runway. You're looking at what's in the business account and you're like, oh, I'm going to have to make some hard decisions here. And then it's just like suddenly everything 180. You know, we, I went from thinking, oh my God, I have like, really little runway i'm gonna have to like let some people go to going oh my gosh like i remember one event i just we just decided to throw our first ever public webinar we made seven and a half grand selling tickets literally wow. over the course of five days so i was like oh great well there, here comes my runway <laughs> my runway's back but it's just kind of crazy you know and so with my ceo hat on i was like 
wow, this is great because there's money coming into the business. I don't have to let any of my contractors or my freelancers go. In fact, I can give them more hours, which is amazing because they're all women of color and like I like to support them. But then as a black woman in tech, as someone who would benefit from more companies buying the service that Hustle Crew provides, I was. we've been saying that this work is important. We've been saying that, you know, your investment in this will help us, our community, the future, but you didn't do anything about it until you saw a police officer choke a black man to death and that went viral. You know, until you heard about Breonna Taylor savagely murdered in a police raid gone wrong. I was like, is that what it takes for me to be human in your eyes? For me to be an equal in your eyes? Is that what it takes for you to believe? Or did you always believe, but you just didn't care enough? So that part of me was really upset during that period. And I remember one uh, conversation I had with, I think it was either an investor, an early stage founder. And I was saying, wow, like, you know, sorry, it's taking me so long to get back to you. I'm on calls back to back every day, you know, just trying to get back to people who are interested in working with us. And they're like, oh my God, you must be so happy. And I was like, well, I'm not. I mean, this is obviously a white woman. Wow. And I was like, how could I be happy that systemic racism is alive and well and people are only now responding to it and she's like oh oh yeah sorry i guess i didn't think about that i didn't mean it like that and that to me was just that other reminder that like when when you are white and you're in the privileged group and you're in the default group and you haven't experienced systemic racism you haven't experienced microaggressions this death by a thousand cuts that we have all been through as the outsiders as the marginalized groups it's very easy for you to look at that and kind of go oh you're so lucky you must be so happy i was like am i happy people were murdered for us to get here am i happy that we're still being murdered because nothing's changed that's the other thing right this is a system that's centuries in the making it would be naive of us to think that just because we posted a few black squares and a few people have been on training over the last however three or four months everything's fundamentally different. So yeah, that period was really, really tough. And also I experienced such a new level of burnout. And I think it's really important for us to talk about this as leaders and entrepreneurs. It can be really hard for us to say no. I remember there was one day where I was literally, I did a speaking engagement at one event that like Hillary Clinton was speaking at. I went straight from that to an event with like TechCrunch and Mozilla, straight from that to another like black and tech round table, because I was just like, this is a moment, you know, I went from thinking, how am I going to keep my business alive to, oh my goodness, here are all these great ways I can keep my business alive. And when you have that, it's so hard to say no. And I just got to the end of June and I was exhausted. You know, my friends, I remember they threw this like celebration kind of barbecue for me just to kind of say, you know, well done, Abba, for getting through this month. But now is the time to rest because you have to, like, you have to look after yourself. Like you're working so much and we respect you and we were proud of you, but you know, you have to remember to rest too. And I was like really so appreciative of them taking that moment because it's true. I just had that scarcity mindset where I was just like, well, it went from crickets to woohoo, let's get involved. How long will that last? You know what I mean? Like the, the realist, I'm not even going to say cynic, because that's just a realist. I've been in this game four and a half years. The realist in me was like, something else is going to happen soon enough. Let's take advantage of it now. And they're going to get bored and move on. Wow, you have some great friends to, to do that for you, to recognize that fact that you were running 100 yes. miles an hour and you need to kind of just slow down. So that's amazing that you have those people in your corner. I'm really grateful. I think I realized very early on, and I'm sure you can share this reflection too, 
when you're an entrepreneur, you have to make so many sacrifices in the first year of your business. Like you have to say no to things in your social life. Oh, I can't afford that dinner. Sorry. I don't have time to come to that. Oh, I'm not free this weekend. And I think you really start to realize like who your true friends are because they're the people that, that get it. They're like, this is you're you're on the part of your journey right now where you need to really focus on this and and we support you and then you'll have other friends who who don't get it or they're almost like willing you to fail quickly so that you can be the person you used to be um and i think i'm really grateful for for my friends just because i don't think hustle crew could be where it is if it weren't for my friends you know what i mean like there were times where like i literally had no money (laughs) and i was like i can come but y'all are going to have to pay for me. You know what I'm saying? And they were just like, okay, yeah, fine. Come, come. We want you there. We want you there. And I was like, thanks everyone. And you know, like they're the ones that come to all the events. You know, when we used to meet up every month in the South Bank Center, this is like 2016, 2017, just free meetups. Come and like talk about your tech career. We'll look at your CVs. We'll help connect you to people. And I remember, cause you know, when you do your first ever meetup, you don't know if anyone's going to show up. Like people have emailed, people have RSVP'd, but you just don't know, you know, it's London on a Saturday and my friends would come along with me. And before you know it, one person comes, two person comes, three person come. And you're like, oh my God, look, we're a community. We're here together. But yeah, I think friends are everything, you know, support networks are so important. Um, and I really do rely a lot on mine, but I'm also extremely grateful for it. And I let them know, I appreciate them. <laughs> How have you actually been going around building that support network and actually building the circle of friendships that you have? And are these like long-term friendships you've known from like decades or are these more like recent relationships? I think for me, it's very much shaped by my childhood experiences. That's made me be someone that really invests a lot of energy into friendships. So, you know, my parents divorced when I was super young. I don't even ever remember them together. I just remember weekends with one weekends with the other then my dad remarried I moved from the U.S. to Africa I lived with my dad and my stepmom moved countries a lot went to boarding school while I was at university then my dad and my stepmom grew up so I always just kind of never had like a a lot of long-term stability the way I saw other people did you know what I mean so I just felt like other people in my life their family unit was their support network, you know, like maybe their mom and their dad, who they've known since they were little bitty babies, are there for them all the time. And I never really quite felt that I had that same kind of bond with my parents. I appreciate all of my parents so, so much. But yeah, I guess I just didn't feel like I was friends with them, if that makes sense. (laughs) And um, uh, now in my support network are people who, you know, I met at boarding school, like I have a group chat with like my two best friends, like every day we message each other. And if any one of us has something to say, we'll be like, okay, I have a vent. And it's like, you know, one of us will vent and be like, okay, cool. You know, this is what I think. No, I'm on your side here, blah, 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 blah. Or if we like read a really good article or really interesting thing from like the world of psychology or human behavior, be like, oh, what do you think about this? So I speak to them. Um, you know, I'm married. My husband and I have been together almost a decade and I was reflecting on it. I was like, wow, that's like a third of my life. And to be honest, like the first few years of your life, you don't even have choices or control. So maybe it's kind of like actually half my life, really, if I think of the the part of my life where I've been able to make choices. So um, I'm super grateful for my husband. You know, he is my best friend. And then the other friends in my life, I've just known since pretty much like university which again, you know, it's a long time now because I'm in my 30s. Um, but yeah, they're all people who, you know, we I live next to most of my really good friends now. Like we made a choice over the last sort of like five or so years to like 
live within walking distance of each other, which is oh, wow. so useful for lockdown, by the way. Like we couldn't even have predicted that. I don't think we even would have predicted that there, <laughs> there's a pandemic in the mix, but then it became really useful when it was because we could walk to each other and be like, oh, hey, how's it going? Um, but yeah, I think I, I, for the most part, have like a close-knit group of friends who I've known for a really, 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 really long time. And we've just grown up together. We share really similar values. I think we see the world in the same way. And we we all share similar priorities. And absolutely, one of those priorities is spending quality time with people that you love. You know, we work hard. I think we all work hard in all the different disciplines we're in. You know, some are creative, some are, um, you know, in politics, arts, all this kind of stuff. So, but we all we all appreciate each other. And that's something that we always make time for. I absolutely love that. You just talked about um, uni. So you've got a BSc in like economics and government yes. from LSE. Yes. And I'm, I'm assuming, talked about your dad as well, we'll talk about this beforehand. Obviously your dad's Nigerian, one's Filipino. You're gonna yes. have the, the cultural thing of we want you to go down a certain path. How did you navigate that conversation with um, your parents? around doing something completely different, which was in the linear, typical, traditional, ethical <laughs> role that we, we tend to get pushed down, shall I say. Yeah, I mean, so with economics, I never thought I would study anything else because I'm sure so many immigrant folks listening here are gonna relate to this. Like, as soon as I can remember, it was just known I was gonna study economics. Like, it was just a non-negotiable thing. So, you know, I was brainwashed, <laughs> you know, straight up, straight up, I was brainwashed. <laughs> my dad would like be like, here, my friend, read this, read this article in The Economist. My friend, read this, read that, read whatever. So from the youngest age, I was just like, oh, I'm gonna be an economist. And my dad was an economist. You know, he worked for the International yeah. Monetary Fund and that's what gave us a super great life. So I guess in his view, it was just like, she'll become an economist. She'll work for the UN, IMF, something like this. And I'm going to be proud of her. <laughs> and it was super interesting because there were a few moments in my life where I tried to do something a bit different. Like I remember when I was picking my A-levels, I, I really liked drama. I was really good at drama as well. Um, I got an A-star in GCSE. I always acted in school plays because we had a really big drama department in my school. And I just said to my dad, you know, okay, I'm doing economics, I'm doing philosophy, um, you know, I'm probably gonna do French because it's good to have a language and I really love French. Like I love the language and I think it's so nice to have another language. And then I was like, okay, I could do history. Great, history is great, I love history, but can't I just do drama? <laughs> and my dad was like, my friend, what are you gonna do with a drama subject? What are you gonna do? You're gonna be an actor? You think actors make money? come on, be serious. And I was just like, oh, but it's so fun. He's like, so I'm sending you to school to have fun now. Am I? I'm paying all this money so you can enjoy yourself. Wow, I see. He's like, you've been spending too much time with these white people. And I was just like, oh. So that was that conversation done, right? Like over. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm not doing drama then. Um, and yeah, you know, I got into LSC. My dad was actually disappointed because he wanted me to go to Oxford. That's where he did his PhD. He did PPE. He went to Balliol College. I remember going to Oxford with like other girls from my school that had, you know, also been accepted for interviews. I sat all of the exams. So I didn't even, I, I don't know if people know this, but I thought I was going for interview. You know, it's like Oxford. No, you go for interview and tests. So I remember doing all the tests and I remember 
going for the economics interview and the guy was like it was the scariest like <laughs> moment of my life I remember like the careers coach in my school was like they'll usually ask you some warm-up questions like how's your train journey I literally walked straight into this guy's office and he was like how much is a barrel of Texas crude oil? And I was like, uh, and he's like, sit down. And I was like, okay. And then I sat down and he was like, solve this equation. And I was like, oh no, this isn't going well. <laughs> this isn't going well. And I remember running out of the room at the end and just calling my dad crying and being like, there's no way I'm getting in. Like I, I completely failed that. And he was like, don't say that. Don't say that. There's still two other interviews. There's still this, there's still that. And I remember getting the letter. I think we must've been in like, we were in Nigeria for Christmas and the letter came and I remember my stepmom just saying to me, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't get in, like you're still going to get a good education. Like you've worked so hard. It doesn't matter. Like you can't control everything. And I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. And then we opened the letter and I don't even think my dad could look at me. <laughs> I don't even think he could look at me. I think he was just thinking of all that money he spent on boarding school fees that had now like amounted to this. But anyway, I'd already had my acceptance to LSE. So yeah, got to LSE. I was so happy to be in London, actually. It kind of worked out a lot better. Um, but yeah, as soon as I was like going through economics at LSE, I was just like, there's no way I can be an e economist. Like, no way. Like, don't get me wrong. It's interesting. But no one told me about econometrics. What's this? What's this stuff? The statistics. I, don't, I am not a statistical person. No, 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 no. Okay, okay. I was like, they left this out of the A-levels. They left this out. What is this? I was like, nah, I'm good. I'm good. And I was just like, so if you do a master's and a PhD, you have to do econometrics. No, 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 no. Anywho, um, I think it was actually during university where I just started to realize, kind of to your point about being a rebel, that it's, it's okay to not uh to not always make your parents proud it's okay to disappoint them sometimes especially if they're really strict especially if they're really like set in their ways and you know i'm in my 30s and like my parents still want me to be like a lawyer consultant whatever like you just you just can't win you just can't win when i wasn't married it's like when you're getting married when i was married it's like when you're having kids you know and then <laughs> when you don't have a job it's like when you're getting a job when you have a job it's like what isn't that job and i was just like you know what Y'all are crazy. Y'all are crazy. So I think I've been able to make my peace with it because I just have <laughs> really like challenging parents with like their own perspectives of the world. And that's okay. I think that's, that's, I think that's very, very important though. Because a lot of times we end up saying yes to the people and saying no to ourselves. And therefore we live a very unsatisfied and happy lives. So you kind of be like, no, I need to say yes to me and do what do I want to do, which is really, really good and really, really powerful. But, Something you did after, actually, a number of years after um, university, which was you got your first role or tech role, shall I say, yeah. at Groupon. How you got that role at Groupon was we were talking to one of the, the UK family at that point in time. Yes, I really worked my network. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, how? Like, seriously, I was really, I was like, wow. Like, how did you have the, even the confidence to be like, you know, I'm going to seek this guy in my network and then go after that role and get something? It was just, I don't even know. I think it was just some kind of madness, some kind of like moment of divine grace and inspiration where like, you know, God must have just sent the message to my head and I ran with it. But I, you know, I had recently watched the film, The Social Network. And I was just like, oh, okay, this looks like a pretty good life. I like this idea of like hacking an idea together and then becoming like 
incredibly rich. I was like, why am I, I was like, what am I doing working in the city and like all suited and booted when I can be doing this fun stuff in my jeans um, and making more money. So um, I was like, okay, I'm going to work at a startup. I want to work at a startup that is growing really fast. Like I don't want to just be any old startup. And I knew that there were a few people at LSE who were working at Groupon. And I spoke to a few of them and I was just like, you know, do you think it's going to be successful? Is it going to go public? And they're like, oh my God, yeah. Like, you know, our founder's been on the cover of Forbes, this, that, whatever. So I was like, okay, let me try and get in here. But obviously at that time, you know, it's like hard to get your foot in the door, right? And so I was like, I really want to try and like make a splash. So I I was trying to work out who could refer me to an open role. So I was also trying to basically like try to have like as many referrals as possible so that they would be like, wow, this person's name keeps coming up. We should really like hire them. So I was like, okay, I've got my LSE Connects set done. Then around the same time, there was this like social network. I don't even know if it's still around, but I think it was called like, it's a small world or something like that. And it was like one of those like elite social network kind of things. And so one of my best friend's friends, like it wasn't even her. I don't even, yeah, was like, oh, well, I can check on this elite social network if there's anyone from group on there. And then we can also try and get you a referral through that. So I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. See what you can find. And then they found the co-founder. So I was like, oh, okay, amazing. I'm going to write a note to the co-founder about why I want to join his startup. And so that friend then got me like access to the social network or like something where I could message him. So then I also like dropped him a message there and I just like did my little pitch because, you know, I'd been like reading online how you like break into the startup world, how people in Silicon Valley like, you know, ambush a founder at the coffee shop he goes to every day and just go, you should hire me because blah, 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 blah. So I did my own little like virtual pitch. And then I also had my friend at LSE um, uh, from LSE, you know, do a little reference for me. And then before I knew it, I had a recruiter calling me saying, hey, we want to bring you in for interview. Do you remember what your pitch was? I basically said that as an economics graduate from LSE, I had like great critical thinking skills. I was incredibly commercially aware. I had editorial experience from the Financial Times. And in my most recent role, because I was working in a finance company, I was producing conferences for some of the most senior, like whatever, finance executives around the world. So I was like, I can basically do anything and I can do it really well. So you tell me what you want me to do. That was it. <laughs> I like that. What was, what was it like working in that that environment, which was like, like you said, it was fast paced. It was just a year before there, the IPO. You do a lot in that period of time. It was so cool. Like sometimes I kind of wish like, you know, if I could partner with the right talented people, I'd love to make like a show about that time or a film about that time because it was just so surreal. And when all of the Uber stuff started blowing up, all the scandals about Uber, I just started to realize, wow, all that stuff happened at Groupon, but it was just normal. Like we didn't talk about it, you know, like I just can't, I cannot describe the energy because it's one of those things that I just wish you were there. But, you know, we would come in and like from 9 a.m., everyone would be hitting the phones, whether you're in sales, whether you're an account manager, or if you were like in strategy, you'd be trying to work out what's going to be the best deal, how much money can we make? I mean, we were making millions every week, like tens of millions, like just in one team alone. It was crazy. It was just like madness, chaos, people running around all the time, like always running always flying around because it was daily deals. There was no respite. There was no break. You know what I mean? Like every day you're making the next day's newsletter. And today I'm sorting out the mess from yesterday's deals that went live that oversold or this or that. You know, we were like in the press, so many scandals, Office of Fair Trading said we were like being dishonest. Merchants were saying we were 
um, paying them well. I was in a role where I dealt, I was like sort of the middleman between merchants and then our internal department. So if if a company was going live tomorrow with 50% off, you know, pizzas, I would be working with the owner of that restaurant to help them make sure editorial got their deal right, design got their deal right, finance paid them properly. So I was like, we were often on the firing line and it was just so intense. So we would pretty much work like 9am on the phones, on emails all the time until the end of the day, because we were early stage, we didn't have systems and processes. You know what I mean? Like we were building as we went along. And I just remember one day I said like, you know, why don't we have email templates? Like we're writing the same email a million times a day. Like we should just have in the system, like click that. That's what I want to say. Boom. And they're like, okay, go build it. And I was like, what? They're like engineering's there. Engineering's there. Go tell them and go build it. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, I'm confused. Like I've never had this autonomy before. Like usually people are like, telling me to come up with a business plan, put the proposal together for the team. And I remember my boss, Richard, being like, well, we're a startup, so we build as we go. You have an idea. If it's good, let's build it and see if it works. And I was just like, wow, okay. And that would happen all the time. Like all the time, I'd be like, hey, like we should create like a a handbook for like new businesses that are starting out because, you know, they can then have like a resource to refer to after our onboarding call ends. And they're like, great idea. Go to editorial, build it. I was like, oh, Okay. And so that was it, you know, and I was just like, wow, this is so amazing. Like, this is so cool. Like no checks, no balances, no red tape. You have an idea. You, if there's a problem you want to solve, find the person, solve it. So that was amazing. But you know, wow. I I was in my twenties. I couldn't do that now. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like they, you know, it it was like uni 2.0. We were all young. We're all in it together. We would finish late. We would go to the pub, get smashed, come back and do it all over again. You know, most days of the week, if we weren't working, we were playing. And I do not have the energy for that now. No way. But then at the same time, I'm so grateful for all of the friends that I made because we have seen some shit. Oh, Lord, the skeletons in the closet, in the collective closet. I mean, you know, people taking drugs at work because it helps them sell. Um, Just crazy, crazy, crazy things, all sorts of affairs, all sorts of inter office relations, like just honestly, just so crazy. Like when you watch shows like Silicon Valley, you're kind of like, oh God, this is so absurd. But you don't realize all of that stuff is based in reality. Like fact is always stranger than fiction, but it was really an incredible time. You know, it was three years of my life, as long as I was at university and like filled with as many adventures. Have you always liked the, even now though, I know you said, you know, you're a lot older. Do you still like the fast-paced yeah. environment, or do you still do you prefer the slow-paced environment now? You went to Amazon after that, and you found that very slow-paced, yeah. and you were like, nah. Oh my god, that was like, <laughs> whew. I was like, wow, I've really gone from like day to night over here. I actually think there's so much to be gained from momentum, and this is something that you know we always really tried to talk about a lot at Product Hunt. But of course, you want to plan as much as you can minimize risk, get everyone's input. But implementation is so important too. And one of the things that I like to think of is like maybe they're existing like on a continuum or like along a spectrum. And on one end is like planning, planning, planning. On the other hand is like doing, doing, doing. And you just have to choose where across that tension you want to be. And I think for certain things, it benefits you to do more planning. But other times it's just right to just do. And I think... I'm definitely someone that still prefers that faster pace of moving because I think sometimes we spend too long dilly-dallying. Oh, what does he think? What does she think? I was like, look, let's just do it. Because I really love that lean startup 
methodology, we're saying it's like data should drive our decisions, not thoughts, opinions, and and perspectives. And I just think you're not getting the right data you need until you're doing. So I still lean towards like doing things um, and moving really quickly. However, you know, taking a step back just from like speaking in strategic terms and just speaking in in individual terms, there is like a cost to well-being when everyone has to always move at that pace. And I think, you know, when when I worked at Groupon, like I said, I was really young. I was at a time in my life I didn't have responsibilities. I didn't have commitments. Honestly, like I didn't even have like a real understanding of the world still at that age. So it, I, I wasn't thinking properly, like, am I saving enough money? Am I calling my parents enough? Am I being a good, you know what I mean? You're just like young. You're just young, having fun, just like running around, doing what everyone wants to do. But there was obviously not, not every day was perfect. Like, I think it was a great for it was a great place for me to learn, but like, and, but I could have learned more. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't thinking strategically about my career development. I kind of stayed within the same department doing a similar kind of role for the whole time I was there. I could have probably been like, maybe I should spend a bit more time in product because I later realized how valuable it'd be for me to have that experience. Even the time that I spent with engineering, I never thought, oh, maybe I should spend a bit more time with engineering and actually like, you know, learn a bit more coding here. Or, you know, when I was spending time um, with strategic planning, I wasn't like, oh, maybe I should spend a bit more time with strategic planning, you know, try, try to move here. And I think times where I did try to get more experience in those other departments, because I was such a high value asset in my team, it was often like blocked indirectly because people are like, "Mm, but she's so good here and we don't want to lose her. So, you know, there are also like some things about it that, I mean, aren't, aren't so great. You know, that fast paced way of moving where you're not always given a chance to actually zoom out and breathe and think about what you want in the long run. You're kind of only ever thinking of the next goal. So looking back over your career so far and people that you've either worked with directly or indirectly and when we think about leadership which is one thing the role that you played a big part in right now in Brandwatch what does leadership actually mean to you? Mm, that's a really good question I think one of the things that has like really really struck me is actually from a management training I did in Groupon because <laughs> I used to manage a team there and it was just saying that you don't manage a team you manage individuals And what that saying was basically um, trying to get at is the fact that we are all different, which means we all have different needs, which means we all have different ways in which we are supported. And we also have different communication preferences. Like there's a certain way I like to receive feedback. There's a certain way I like to be encouraged and motivated. And that might not be the same as you, even though we're on the same team. So if our manager just takes a one size fits all approach, who is that manager optimizing for? Me, you, them? And if that manager's job is to get the most out of each of us, shouldn't they be adapting accordingly so that they can get something out of the uh, out of each of us? So I think one of the things I really started to appreciate in terms of leadership is someone who really understands the needs of the individuals reporting into them. Um, so that's that's something that leadership means. What leadership means to me, I also think leadership has to be grounded in a willingness to be inclusive in everything that you do. I think it's, it's lazy if you just decide, okay, Brad is my A player. So I'm managing Brad or I'm managing Brad style and everyone else can like it or lump it. I just think you're really doing everyone a disservice. I don't really think there's a lot of integrity in that. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just think that it just feels lazy to me. Um, 
and I think leadership is so much about integrity. It's like, are you proud of the decisions you make? Would they hold up in, you know, the court of law and the court of morals and the court of ethics? Um, and would you defend those words that you've just said? If, if we were in a public space, you know, would you defend those actions if we were in a public forum? And if everything you do isn't something you'd be proud to defend in a public forum, then you're not a good leader, in my opinion. You're a shady leader. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is like, I think really good leaders do see their team as as human beings, not as resources. You know, it's not like you're a function to create this output. It's like you're, you, you have a life and you have values and you have perspectives and you have experiences. And I think a really good leader will respect those. And, you know, when I'm saying what I think is a good leader, I'm describing the person that I want to be when I'm leading. You know, that's the kind of person I want to be. I think I don't see enough of that. And it's the kind of leadership that I feel would have made me become a much more productive person a lot earlier in my career and be able to therefore add so much more value to the experiences I had and the roles I played. Um, and I do genuinely believe that focusing on those things will allow people to just deliver results and excel in their roles because I think there's a lot of energy being spent on being managed by people who don't understand you, who don't see you, who don't hear you. And then that energy is just wasted navigating those unsaid things or un you know misunderstood moments. And that energy could just go into whatever you've been hired to do. That is so powerful. So thinking about doing stuff that you've been actually hiding, in your case, you've actually created, you created hustle career in what, 2016? It yes. was driven by a number of different things which you can touch on right now. But one of the things you've talked about prior to this was inspired by the original Black Lives Matter in 2016. So in the last four years, you've been a woman in tech doing different things. How has your journey from prior to Hustle Crew to Hustle Crew in 2016 to now been in terms of um, like career, people, conversations? Because the reason I'm asking that question is you, someone who's talked around um, being very confident, negotiating your salary, demanding for yourself, all yeah. that kind of stuff. But during this whole period, have you seen changes in particular periods when prior to 2016, then that four-year gap, and obviously now in the ecosystem and tech world especially? Yeah, it's been interesting to observe it from my vantage point because in 2016 I was just another woman in tech I had like no like status no public persona to speak of really I was just a person <laughs> um and I was a really unhappy person I was someone that had quit my job at Amazon for the promise of more authority you know great things to come only to realize that was really not the case. If anything, it was worse because I'd been sold seniority and I was not treated like an equal. And I saw a lot of things that made me feel really uncomfortable and like were super unproductive for me trying to excel in my role. And all my, all my attempts to create a more inclusive culture were just met with deaf ears. And I was just like, okay, I'm out. And I, even at that point, I was still not ready to be an entrepreneur. Like I just didn't have the confidence I needed. I didn't think I had the money. I didn't think I had the connections. I didn't have the education, the awareness. I just didn't know, you know what I mean? And so I was trying to get other startup jobs until I felt ready, until I thought I could. But because <laughs> my old 
colleagues were such haters. No one would give me a reference. And I was just like, wow, okay. What? Here we go then. I guess I'm gonna, I guess I'm gonna do do my business now is the time yeah it was crazy because i like made complaints against people for how i had been treated and stuff like that like i literally remember one of my line managers saying like yeah i don't feel comfortable giving you a reference given you made a complaint against me wow and i was just like wow wow that's some petty ass <laughs> shit but okay enjoy your life sir and so there i was and i was just like i'm gonna show them you know they always say the best what is it the best revenge is success so i was just like okay my time has come clearly um let's do this and it was amazing like i remember going to an intersectional feminist uh conference at king's and meeting so many amazing black women and one of them introduced me to the princess trust enterprise scheme to kenya fraser and i joined up to that and then that was amazing because i was actually in a room with people who had way less privilege than me but who also wanted to start a business and i was realizing it's not that hard you know they would come in and be like this is how you set it up on company's house this is how you work out your pricing this is how you do this this is how you do that i got set up with a mentor he was a guy that owns the food chain chosen noodles which you've probably seen around the city and that was great. Suddenly, I just like had all of the missing pieces of the information. And I know what you're thinking. It's like, but you worked in a startup. You still didn't know how to run a business. I was like, yeah, but I I wasn't an engineer, right? I wasn't creating a digital product to then raise VC funding and go out and sell it. I considered doing that. But then I spent like literally a few hours watching a YouTube tutorial on how to code. I was like, this is going to take me a long time. <laughs> I was like, this is going to take me too long. Let me just go build a no-code solution and, and you know, start start bringing my community together and start thinking of, of how I can sell stuff. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, I had no guarantees at that part of my journey. I just had an idea. I had, I had a lot of pain, you know, a lot of pain and, and frustration. And that was the problem I needed to solve. That's what was keeping me up at night, you know, and that's what I wanted to do something about and at that time that first year of hustle crew it was hard i'm not gonna lie it was so hard like no one wanted to have that conversation even though i had lived it and i had experienced it and i could tell people do you know what it's like to be on a sales call and someone comes and touches your hair without your permission because that's not cool people shouldn't do that and it's disruptive and people are like, we don't have problems like that here yeah we don't have problems like that here and i was like okay I'd be like, well, do you want to work on your diversity? And they'd be like, oh, we've got women employees. I was like, oh, where? And they're like, oh, the chef and the receptionist. And I was like, okay. Wow, okay. And, and I was like, wow, okay. And I remember doing my first year accounts. I did not have many invoices. I'm not going to lie. I didn't have many invoices to count. It was very easy to do my first year accounts. And every single invoice was paid by a woman of color. Like black women, black women, Asian women, black women, black women, mixed race women. And I just suddenly realized, that's all the black women in tech. What am I going to do in year two? <laughs> I was literally like, there's no one left to sell to. I've, I've, I've sold to everyone that gets it. What am I going to do? And that's actually how I ended up at Product Hunt because I was at this sort of point where I was just like, no one wants to invest in me. Investors are like, oh, this is such a good idea, but I think it should be a nonprofit. And I was like, why should it be a nonprofit? when companies benefit from it. Look at the research. The research says diverse teams are more innovative. Diverse teams are more profitable. Why should I be a nonprofit? This is a commercial venture. People pay for consulting. People pay for training. Why can't they pay for diversity consulting and diversity training? Um, anyway, so then I got into Product Hunt and I'm so grateful for Ryan Hoover and, and my friend Emily um, Snowden 
all the people on the team that really supported me because they said, this is your incubator, you know, you can use our parent company, Angelist, and you can use Product Hunt to roll out these trainings, develop these workshops, keep building this, this message, this story of the importance of, you know, inclusion in tech, greater inclusion in tech. So that's what I did. And that's how I gained experience. And then it's just suddenly like, I just realized I was a bit too early, right? Because over the course of 2017, more and more communities started to crop up talking about it and other events started to crop up. And then the older community started to gain momentum. And then we launched Techish and Techish was just an idea, but suddenly people all over the world, Kenya, South Africa, Atlanta, were using hashtag Techish to say, wow, I feel seen. Yeah, I'm a black person in tech. I This is amazing. Or I'm just a black person interested in tech. And I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know that there were people that could create conversations that I can connect to about tech like this. This is amazing. And I think the real like moment of realization that this is this is big i am now at a level i i didn't realize i could reach was when the financial times did their list of 100 most influential people in tech and i was on it and i was just like what because i remember i was still in the us i think product hunt had sent me to the afrotech conference which was also amazing and then I just woke up to catch my flight and then i saw this text from michael and he was like have you seen it have you seen it and i was just like this is crazy this is actually crazy because less than what a few years ago, less than three years ago, <laughs> no one would give me a reference from my last job. That was the reality of being a black woman in tech. Oh no, you made a complaint about us um, being prejudiced against you. So we're going to cut off your opportunities for future employment. That's, that's what you're saying when you don't give someone a reference, right? That's literally what you're saying. Tech is small. It's a small, small world out here. You, you want to label someone as like unreferenceable? you're having like a serious impact on their future career. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, so I went from that situation where I was just like, oh my gosh, I feel so powerless right now. I remember crying down the phone to my friend after I got that message from my ex boss, because I was just like, this is so unfair. What can I do? And she's just like, don't worry, trust me, something better is going to happen. And you know, boom, prophecy came true. Here I am on the FT list. And then it just snowballed from there. Elle magazine, Marie Claire magazine, you know, this press, this press. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is incredible. And now it's like, I'm just a recognizable name. And it's kind of crazy to me still, you know what I mean? Cause I'm the same person. <laughs> I'm the same person. I've done more projects. I've had the opportunity to use this platform to discuss my mission. But you know, my friends tease me. They're like, oh, I was an influencer now. And it's just funny, you know, because it's like, am I an influential person? Am I any more influential now than I was before? But I guess I am because now people know who I am and they know the work that I do. And, you know, Hustle Crew gets to work with such cool companies, NHS, Snap, Facebook, you know, companies I would have dreamed to even just pay me 100 pounds for a speaking gig back in the early days when I was just trying to get it off the ground, you know, now, now doing partnerships with them. So it's very, it's very incredible, as you can imagine. Um, and sometimes also just feels really surreal. Wow. I'm just going back to that. You start off with, I don't know what I'm doing. Confused. I don't feel ready yet. And yet you still immerse yourself in it. You, you, you jumped in. You didn't wait till everything was perfect. You didn't <laughs> yeah. wait till everything was all good. You didn't wait till you know what you're doing. You got involved. And that's the momentum we'll talk about at the start that makes such a massive difference. A lot of times people just spend time waiting, 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 waiting. 
but you actually got involved while still being confused and you waded your way through that water and you just goes to show what happens. And you also mentioned um, Product Hunt. That sounds like that was like real like powerful allyship where they did brought you in and be like, we're going to do this. We believe in you and your journey. We're going to help you learn and immerse you in that, in that world, which is speaks to great, that's what great allies do, isn't it? They help, Absolutely. help each other to actually grow and push the message forward. Totally. And I think everyone should never, like everyone should remember that there are so many people around you that are ready to invest in you. And I don't just mean cash, right? I mean, time, emotional support, information. I was able to learn so much from Emily and Ryan while I was at Product Hunt that I could apply to my business. Like, oh yeah, you know, this is how we launch this partnership. This is how we do that. You know, you're, you're, you're applying it in your role, but you don't, you don't have to give that information back. You don't have to give those skills and that knowledge back when you leave. Like it's yours for life. So then you can remember how you solved that problem, how you worked with that client, how you did this, and you can apply it in your business. Um, and you know, you're getting paid, right? You're getting paid. I could save money from my job to hire freelancers for Hustle Crew. I didn't have to post, I didn't have time to post social media posts for Hustle Crew all the time. But I knew that there are people I could hire to do that, right? Um, I didn't have time to write case studies about the cool work that we do, but I knew I could hire freelancers to do that. So having a job gave me stability, but then it also gave me funding. It gave me funding for my business. And I'm so grateful for that. How do you actually get those partnerships, the ones that you've had to go out and, and get and secure? How, cause that's something that question now comes up a lot of times when I have conversations with founders and like, I need to get a partnership. And like, how do you do that? You've done it really, really well with Hustle Crew. I think this is probably going to annoy a lot of people who are listening um, because we we have learned and I specifically have learned because I've always been this number one main salesperson that we can't actually do outbound. (laughs) Um, We can't do outbound. And the reason we can't do outbound is because as I learned in the first year when I was trying to raise funding and trying to pitch and the only people who hired me were women of color. A lot of times outbound can feel like an accusation, especially if you're on the very beginning of your journey of understanding privilege and bias. So if Hustle Crew come to you, we're a community for the underrepresented, you know, talks and training to help you make your company more inclusive. It can feel like we're accusing you of not having an inclusive company. Now, I know things have changed a lot with 2020. You know, people are like, oh, I want to be anti-racist. But even still, a lot of companies are still like, we're not racist. We're inclusive. Look, we got Sharon over there and, uh, you know, Muhammad over there. Look, we're all right, you know. So I guess what I have learned is we let the community drive us, right? Everything we do for the community is free because that that's the problem we're solving. And we're just solving it in two ways. We're like offering free advice and free resources to the community of underrepresented professionals. But then we're leveraging the information we gain from the community about the struggles they face, what they want from employers into the solutions we give to companies. So we go into companies and we deliver the workshops. All of our opportunities literally are inbound. And I know that's like a very privileged thing to say. I'm not saying this to like boast or show off. I'm just saying it because that's the truth. (laughs) So companies obviously get to this point where they need to partner with an organization that has a very specific audience or serves a very specific need. And then they look at what's out there and then they decide that Hustle Crew is the company and then they pick us. And, you know, I will also say that we launched a membership. We launched a B2C membership 
in June, in June during the Black Lives Matter. And that's been a fantastic way for us to have recurring revenue because, you know, we now have, I think, close to 200 members paying $15 a month or some of them are one-time members. They just paid a one-off fee of $450. But, you know, we have like a couple thousand dollars every month coming in and that actually covers our operating costs. So we're breaking even and actually maybe even profitable depending on how many hours the freelancers do any given month just by virtue of that. I don't take a salary from Hustle Crew, by the way. We're a social enterprise, so I try to reinvest everything back. So just off our membership alone, we're already running, keeping the lights on. And then when partnerships come in, like, hey, we want to spend XK, whatever, to run this event with you. Or, yeah, we've just paid, you know, three grand for a workshop, whatever it is. That's just bonus stuff that we can then reinvest in other projects, fund a sponsorship, uh, fund a scholarship, fund a bursary, whatever we want to do to help the community. But yeah, the partnerships come through because I have an incredible team, Abiola, Sophia, Clara, creating amazing content about what we do and why we do it that way. And then we blast that online. We share it on Instagram, we share it on Twitter. We, you know, we put it on the website. I do a lot of work, obviously through Techish and just with other media brands talking about our mission. And then the company has come to us. I honestly think it's the community that lets us do that because that's what makes us unique. We are like a community-driven business. There are a lot of, let's say, diversity and inclusion consultancies who are just a bunch of professionals, and that's great. But we we are a tech community first and always have been, and that makes us appealing, I guess. So yeah, I don't really sell. I just wait for people to come to us and then I tell them how much it's going to be. That's the power of influence. And one thing I have really admired has been your journey in a number of different areas. And it's been, we've talked around tech, talked about hustle crew, talked about even just generally speaking. And another area is in your personal life. Like I said, you've been with your partner for nine years. You recently celebrated your one year anniversary, but you were always anti-marriage. You were always, yeah. <laughs> like that was never your, your thing at all. But yet you've said you've got married now. You've, you've got you've got through the way you saw things. And I want to delve into that yes. a little bit more just to understand that how have you managed to change your mind around seeing, like you said, your parents got divorced young, your stepmother, dysfunctionality when yeah. it comes to marriages and relationships. How do you manage to turn that around and that have a different perspective on things? <laughs> um, so I was always very put off the idea of marriage just because my earliest memories of it was that it didn't work. Um, and I just kind of felt like, what's the big deal? Like, if you like someone, just be together. Like, do you need a expensive wedding? Do you need this? Do you need that? And I think just as I got older, I started to really appreciate the value of community. My, my perspective on relying on people changed. That's really what changed. Because I think I grew up with an aversion to relying on people just by virtue of my experiences. But also things I heard at home, you know, like my, my dad wasn't a particularly sociable person. He thought like friends were overrated. And so I just kind of thought that was cool. I was like, yeah, friends are overrated, you know. And then I started making friends. I was like, friends are amazing. And I remember like I always <laughs> used to get teased. Like my dad would tease me for being obsessed with my friends. He's like, oh, you're so obsessed with your friends. You know, like I would maybe be home for the holidays and I'd be on MSN Messenger all day. And my dad was like, my friend, what are you doing? Why are you talking to your friends all the time? Read a book, study, do this, do that. And I was just like, oh, no, like, you know, I'm just having a great time. So it was it was really this idea of like, actually, what's so bad about relying on people? 
I actually think it's nice to rely on people. I want people to rely on me. I want the people I care about to be able to trust that I'll be here for them when they need me. That makes me feel good. It makes me feel purposeful, you know, like I've been brought into this world for a reason. I'm not just an island floating along. And I think that is also how my relationship uh, relationship with the idea of marriage changed as well, because I really like this idea of thinking of a relationship, not just as the people involved, but also the people around you who have helped you stay together, you know, because there are times where, like I said, you know, I started Husk Crew, I didn't really have a lot saved. I wasn't planning to start a business. So it was, you know, by friends being able to like pay for a meal here and there. And, you know, my family, like one of my aunts paid my rent, my, my half sister paid my rent sometimes, like, you know, it's just people's pockets made this dream alive. That's, that's the cold hard truth. And there was also a point not long after I decided to start Hustle Crew where, um, my husband got laid off. Well, he was my boyfriend at the time, but I was just like, oh Lord, there's two unemployed people in this house. God help us. Like it wasn't looking good. You know, it really wasn't looking good. But again, you know, a friend, one of my best friends got him in as an intern or like got him help there. Like, you know, people just find a way to help you survive. And I just realized, like, I just really wanted to show gratitude to all of these people in our lives. And I started to realize, like, that's actually what that what the wedding is about. That's actually what the marriage is about. It's not just about what the two of you want. It's also about the other people in that relationship, really. Right. Because let's face it, like, yes, there's only, you know, you and your relationship, but there's also in a way all the other people in the relationship because they're the ones who've supported you and been there for you. And then that's when I just realized what other chance in life will I have to bring all these people um, who I care about and who I love and who've supported me and who've supported us, have been able to let us stay together. What other chance will I have to unite them? and and show our appreciation show our gratitude so that's why in the end i kind of came around and i was like this is actually really important just listening to you talking i'm just seeing the depth between community so the community you had with your friendship circles even from when you were young or boarding school it's kind of similar to what you've built with hustle crew yeah, yeah. you've kind of just duplicated that but it works it's something that's beautiful it's all about working together and existing with one another and supporting one another and that's why we talk around a lot of stuff is inbound people can see that because everything you're doing is not about you it's about we it's about i find the, the whole community and that's really really amazing to see but speaking of your relationship what would you say what has been the biggest lesson mm. you've learned from, from your partner oh um <laughs> that's the big that's too hard a question that's really unfair <laughs> i don't think i can just pick one thing i think that's really really hard um pick a couple of things okay, pick a couple of i things. think one thing <laughs> one thing that i've learned is when people come to you with a problem they don't always want you to solve it sometimes they just want you to listen mm-hmm. and i definitely am a problem solving person um and that's a really important lesson that i've had to learn so i'd say that's like one of the ones i've had to learn and then maybe like the second one i i've had to learn is um or the second lesson that i've learned from him i think because i just grew up in like a really strict household like i've obviously like alluded to this a lot um 
And I don't think that's like unusual for my culture. I'm not trying to like label my parents in any way, but you know, like, you know, we just had a set way of doing things. Like, you know, you, you had responsibilities. Even though I was a child, I had responsibilities. I had chores, I had to cook, I had to clean, I had to do this, I had to do that, whatever, whatever. And my partner didn't have any of those things, really. I mean, he had them to an extent, but there was no like punishment for, you know, misbehaving like I remember he told me the story that he has his alarm clock he actually still has it but it plays like or something like the army sound like the army song that wakes people up in the barracks and he used to set it to 3 a.m when he was a kid and put it under his parents bed even though he knew his parents had work in the morning and he would leave it there then he would hear it go off and just like laugh or sometimes he'd even sleep through it (laughs) because he was a child you know and then the next day his dad was like what did you do that and he was like ah and I was like did you get beats (laughs) and he was like no one beat me I was just like damn son (laughs) I was like do you know what I mean because I was like before I even had the thought of doing that, I could feel the sting of the slap that I would not even dare to do that. Um, but yeah, I guess one of the things that he's taught me to do is like, you don't have to just just because you grew up a certain way doesn't mean you have to keep living that way. You know what I mean? Because like sometimes we would live together and be like, oh, my God, I feel so guilty that I haven't done the laundry. I feel so guilty. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. He's like, why do you feel guilty? And I was like, oh, because that's how I was raised. (laughs) Like I was just raised to feel bad if I wasn't doing stuff. Like my dad used to love saying things like the devil finds work for idle hands. Like, you know, and you know, and I was just like, I feel bad for being idle. And my (laughs) my husband would be like, just chill out. Like you, you finish work, like just relax and stuff like that. And like, obviously it's not like I was like an obsessive compulsive worker or anything like that. Of course I'm a normal person. I'm lazy as well. But I guess what I mean is like, just on a philosophical level and somewhere in my mind, I actually just have really learned to appreciate doing less as well, which probably feels quite ironic because I still obviously do too much, which is why I'm here on this podcast. But um, it's it's a lesson that I have observed and I'm trying to ad- adopt more. I love that. And I guess the last question I want to ask you, what would you want your legacy to be? Wow, that's a big question. I mean, I I feel extremely grateful of everything that I've been able to achieve so far. And I do truly believe that I'm walking in my purpose. Like I feel that, like I feel that I was born for a reason and the work that I'm doing now is that reason. I think we live in a world where women do not have access to opportunities in the same way as men, you know, black women, especially Asian women, especially when I go back to my home countries, you know, like Philippines, Nigeria, I'm reminded of just how much work there is to do to to promote greater gender equality um, as well as racial equality. So I think my legacy is about education. My legacy is about educating women so that they have the skills they, they need to make the most of their lives, to make the most of their careers and navigate a world that unfortunately was not designed for them. You know, the work world was not designed for us, but here we are anyway. So that's my legacy. Powerful. And you're definitely well on your way to actually changing that because the amount of the work that you do with Hustle Crew and just generally speaking is absolutely amazing. People look to you, like I said, you're a person of influence because people look to you to hear your voice. People look to you to hear what you've got to say. People look to you to be that person who is not going to hold back and shy away, which I know is not always the easiest thing to do. But <laughs> trust me, I know it's not always thing to do, but you keep on doing it anyway. You keep on speaking up even when there wasn't and the reason to do it, you still kept on speaking up. And it's really, really good to see you on your journey. And I know you're going to keep on doing more and more great things. Thank you. Amen. 
All right. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Abdesi. It's Yay. been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Leadership. You can check out the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast where you can find out more about my guests and how you can contact them. You can listen to old episodes or if you have a question about this episode or any other episodes, you can just press a button and ask me that question and I'll answer it on the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, share this podcast with someone else. We'll see you next time on Everyday Leadership.